Hear now the word of God. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel took all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him, asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will make your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the, Lord, of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, would you use your word to awaken us not only to the ways that we, have, that we fall short of your will and fall short of your word, but also awaken us to the answer that is ours in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you actually think about it at this point uh, in this book, we have come a very long way in the narrative from where we first started. You know, remember this. In chapter 1, there was no such thing as Samuel. You know, he was just a prayer in the heart of his mother. And then by chapter 4, he was hearing from the Lord as a boy. His reputation was beginning to spread in Israel. And now here we are in chapter 8, and the passage tells us Samuel became old, and now he has a family of his own. 
It's one of the limitations of rulers, especially good rulers, isn't it? That, that keeps showing up over and over again in the text and in the narrative. You know, the, the people of Israel may have a good prophet, they may have a good priest or a good judge, but the good ones keep dying. And the bad ones can't die soon enough, right? And the people of Israel, they notice this about Samuel. They see that he's aging. And it causes Israel, in a sense, to, to sort of panic, to make this desperate decision that really is not godly and it is not wise. They announce they want a king like all the other nations. They are disappointed with the sons that Samuel has, and they really can't imagine living this way much longer. So they call on Samuel to give them a king. They say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And Samuel's immediate reaction is right. He is displeased. You know, what they're asking for is is not good. But his second reaction is also right. He prays. And actually, much of this chapter is the prayer exchange that happens between Samuel and God. But of course, the real centerpiece, I think, of this section of our reading has got to be verse 7. Because that is when God speaks to Samuel and interprets this situation and what's happening for them. He says, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. It's a, he's, he's basically telling Samuel, this is not personal. This is a theological problem, as so many of Israel's problems are. They are theological problems. And God gives this stinging indictment when he speaks to Samuel. Probably from the people's perspective, this isn't true. Uh, the people think, hey, we haven't rejected God. What we've actually done is we, have, we want God to be our God And then we want to have a king like all the nations. And Israel thinks they can have both of these things. But remember, in this time, every battle was theological. Every move had something to do with God. Everything that happened was theological. And that included their rulers. Now, here we are today in 2019. We're in America. We're in a very different context, right? We're in the context of democracy, And I think it's very difficult for us to even understand the situation for what it really is because we're used to the will of the people being how governments are are run or, or at least how elections are decided, right? But Israel was not a democracy. Uh, Israel, was not, it, Israel was not a democracy. It was what we call a theocracy. It was a government that was ruled by a king, Uh, Not by a priest, not even by some sort of government official or intermediary, but really God himself. And I think from our modern perspective, we, you know, we live in this representative republic where the, the representatives of the people decide how the government is supposed to be constituted and, and run. I think for us, this sort of scandalizes us a bit because it seems like the choice of a king is a democratic choice by the people. I think it may even surprise us to think that God would be troubled by the idea of democracy in Israel. But we have to see things from from God's perspective. These are his people. Uh, He made them. He saved them. He brought brought them. He, He gave them this land. He rescued them from their enemies. He raised up judges to rescue them. You know, everything that they have by this point in 1 Samuel came to them by sheer grace 
from God's hand absolutely freely and under no obligation. He did this because he wanted to, because it pleased him to take care of them. And so because everything they are and everything they had came from God, God has the right to demand that these people follow him, believe in him, and have him as their king. And so when he saves them and when he calls them to be governed by him, this is totally reasonable. We need to see that this is the case. Here's the other thing to note, and it's the thing that really comes out in this passage. As it turns out, God was already their king. Um, It's not like he's telling them to choose him as their king. He actually already is their king. And, And what I want you to see tonight is that all the things they want in a new king, a king like all the nations, they actually already have them in God. Every provision that they want, God does it, and he has done it, and God would have continued to do it. Now, later the people are told all these things the kings will do to them, and their response is, there shall be a king over us who may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they say in verse 20. And there are three things that Israel is asking for tonight. They're asking for a worldly judge. They're asking for a worldly warrior. And they're asking for a worldly king. So first, Israel asks for a worldly judge. They say this in verse 5. They say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, on one level, Israel is rejecting the sort of judges they assume they're about to get. They're not really rejecting Samuel. They've, They've really prospered under Samuel and under Samuel's rule. He's been a good judge for them. He's been an ideal prophet. But his sons, Joel and Abijah, are certainly not Samuel, right? They are not going to be able to fill their father's shoes. They are morally corrupt men. They are taking bribes. They're making bad judgments. They're lawbreakers. When you look in God's law, it's very, very clear, especially about rulers of the people. In Deuteronomy 16, it says, you shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. And then Proverbs 17 23 says something very similar. It says, The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. And so, the, really, Scripture is calling these sons wicked, and he is calling them unjust. You know, if the judge in the land is corrupt, it's very difficult to have justice. If he's biased against you because the other guy has given him money, it's very difficult to find recourse. And they are on course to have a very rotten pair of judges. We just need to face that there is an unpleasant situation coming up. And so the elders of Israel, they perceive a solution. And their solution is a man-made solution. They say, let's have a king instead. And we need to be crystal clear about this as well. The book of Deuteronomy does not say that they can't have a judge. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy expects that they're going to have a judge Um, When you read Deuteronomy 17, we would have read Deuteronomy 17 maybe a month or so ago. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 talks about the rules for the king, what sort of man he should be, and so on. And so having a king is not a sin. The sin is not the sin of asking for a king. So yes, they want a king. They're reacting against Joel and Abijah. But don't miss that they are asking for a king, and this is what makes it sinful, like all the nations. So when they say this, 
It exposes the real problem. It exposes that the problem is the issue of motive. Why are they asking for a king? And what is the kind of king they're asking for? Why would they do this? See, the fundamental flaw in the plan, in the thinking of these elders of Israel, is that Israel was supposed to be different. They were supposed to be distinct from the nations. There were supposed to be painful and obvious things that made Israel stand out. Just let me give you two verses just to sort of show you how different they were supposed to be. Leviticus 20, 26 says, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So the idea is he separated them from the nations. They're not supposed to be just one among many nations. They're supposed to radically stand out from their neighbors and from the people who live in the land. And then Numbers 23.9 is another one. It says, Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. So part of the problem is they think of themselves as being among the nations. They consider themselves one of these people. And God says, actually, the ideal is you were never supposed to think of yourselves that way. You don't understand yourselves. And so you're not acting rightly. Um, The elders introduce this, this answer and there's a poison pill. It's a fatal flaw. You see that the flaw is they don't trust God to solve their problems. They want to take control of their destiny now. God hears the elder's idea, right? He sees their motivation. He sees that they aren't asking for a king because they want God to rule them better. They're asking for a king so they can become like the other nations. They are taking charge of the situation rather than following the lead of God. I think there's actually a bit of a play on words here. Also, because not only will this king they're asking for function as a judge, but he will actually be a judgment from God, right? This is not going to go the way they expect. They are very optimistic about how this king is going to rule, and they are far more optimistic than they have any right to actually be. And so that is the first thing they do. The first thing they do is they ask for a worldly judge. They tire of this constant stream of judges, this constant uncertainty between judges, and they want something that's more solid. And so they try to create that for themselves. The second thing Israel does is they ask for a worldly warrior. Now, at first, they don't talk about the king this way. They don't mention fighting. They don't mention warfare. But then Samuel launches into a series of reminders. We'll get to those reminders in a moment. Um, about the sort of things the king is going to do, and none of the things the king is going to do are good. But you notice this. The people are very insistent. They say in verse 20, There shall be a king over us that our king may go out before us and fight our battles. Once upon a time, Israel didn't need a king to do this for them because they had a king who was winning their battles and who was fighting their battles for them. Let me give you just a a smattering from the Old Testament, right? Exodus 14, 14 says, The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Uh, Deuteronomy 1.30, The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Right? More God is fighting for them, right? Deuteronomy 3.23, you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. 
Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. And then in Joshua, why did Joshua capture all the kings in the lands of the Canaanites? Chapter 10, verse 42 says, For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. And then just one more. By the way, I could just... I could do dozens of these because it's all over the Old Testament. Jeremiah twenty eleven is this cry of confidence. The Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. And, and when you go through the Old Testament, what you see is just on repeat, this constant theme that God is fighting. God is fighting. God is fighting. That's the intention of how this is supposed to go. And this is how they once lived up until this point. This was how their forefathers survived. This was how Israel made it all this way. They had God to fight for them. He was doing it. He was doing it. Whenever they stumbled, it was because they tried to sort of take the reins. Israel lived by faith. It was, it was often a weak faith, but even a weak faith is, is still faith. If you've been a Christian for for more than a few years, I I wonder if there are periods in your life you look back at and you remember how you really lived by faith and not by sight. Um, I've been a a Christian now for over 20 years, and, and I occasionally look at my early years as a Christian, and I sort of envy that kid. You know, I sort of I sort of envy the sort of faith I I had in those days. Uh, I wonder if you can relate. If you look back at a time in your life where you really felt like your faith was strong and you were willing to do anything, gutsy things. You know, back in those days, I didn't know very much theology. I, I didn't know all the, all the, I don't even think I knew the names of all the books of the Bible, right? I, I couldn't answer people's questions. I, I really couldn't talk very much doctrine. Um, I, I couldn't send the Mormons running away crying, you know, that sort of thing. But as I look back on that young man, I sort of envy the way that he looked at the future. And without being able to articulate it, he knew God was good. He knew that God was in control. He knew God was sovereign. He knew that he could trust him. He was a far less fearful kid. And when I remember that young man, I have to admit, sometimes I look in the mirror and I wonder why this old man with... Well, like you can't see it now because I keep shaving it off, but these gray hairs keep trying to peek through my, my, my chin and, and on my, my face now. And I sort of wonder to myself, you know, why, how did that kid become so anxious and so fearful? I wonder if you can relate. Do you need to be reminded of God's victories in your life? God's victories in your family, God's victories in your church, God's victories in, in your community, the way that it, I need to be reminded of that. I suspect we all do, especially if we've been a Christian for a certain period of time. Partially, that's what Sundays are, right? Sundays are the day when we come together and we're reminded together of the victory of Christ over the very things that we fear. God was their warrior. He, he preserved them. He, he carried them but by this point, Israel has slipped so far. You know, they've started fighting their own battles. They've started living by their own strength. They're surviving by their own wits. And that's what's happening here. Instead of living by faith, instead of trusting in the one who has never let them down, they're trying to grab the reins again. And in their desperation, what do they do? They ask for a worldly warrior instead of God to be their warrior. 
The third thing Israel asks for is a worldly king. They want a king like the nations. Now, I mentioned this before. Asking for a king isn't sinful. Um, Deuteronomy 17.14 says that when the people ask for a king, that is acceptable. But then you sort of start to see the ground rules. What is this king supposed to be like? And you start to see the things that make this king different from the other kings, right? The king of Babylon would not fit the bill here. The king of, of, the, of the Assyrians would not fit the bill, right? The rulers of the Canaanites would not fit the bill here. Listen to this. What are some of the ground rules? Uh, he has to be a king who is an Israelite. He can't be a foreigner, right? He has to be a, a man of God's own choosing. He's, the, the text says he, he can't live a typical kingly lifestyle with a huge military and a vault full of money and a harem full of women. Uh, it says he's supposed to live under God's law. He's, he's actually supposed to sit down and he's supposed to write out his own copy of God's law. And it says in Deuteronomy he's supposed to do this. And then he's supposed to give it to the priest and the priest is supposed to spell check it, basically, make sure that he doesn't have a, a faulty copy of Scripture. And the text says he's supposed to read it every day of his life. So you can see the, uh, the king of Babylon wouldn't qualify. He would never do these sort of things. Um, and the other kings of the nations wouldn't either. So, so God's intention is you can have a king, but he needs to be so different that no one would ever mistake you for Canaan or, or Babylon or Assyria or Egypt or any of these other nations. So this is not supposed to be the sort of king that the nations have. This is a very different kind of king altogether. And God tells Samuel, he says, go ahead, let them know what they're in for before you do this. And so Samuel tells them, he says, he's going to make your children fight in the army. He's going to make them serve in his royal household. He'll take the best of what you have and he's going to take it for himself. He'll take your food. He'll take your wine. He'll take all the good things that you have. And he's going to build up for himself an elaborate, fancy lifestyle. And the people say, that's how these things are done. Fine by us. They have decided that these compromises they have to make in this case are the price of having a king like all the nations, right? Sure, he might be corrupt. Sure, he might mistreat our nation. Sure, he might treat us like his own personal piggy bank and benefit from us as much as he can. But all the rest of them do the same, right? This is just part of playing the game. And this is an undeniably sad moment. You know, once upon a time, Yahweh was their king. And they knew it. Yahweh used to be their judge. Yahweh used to fight their battles. And now they're scrambling to find somebody to do this for them. They have settled for a worldly solution to a spiritual problem. The people want to do something by means of a, a political act that can really only be achieved through ongoing spiritual responsibility. You know, this is... There's a sort of mechanistic, mechanical approach to the problem, right? We're about to have bad rulers, so let's maneuver the Titanic around this approaching iceberg. And all the while they miss that this is a spiritual issue for Joel, Abijah, and the nation of Israel as a whole. These are theological problems, first and foremost, but they approach them as if they're everyday normal problems. And I would just pause... At this point, and as we consider this, 
Don't we so often see problems in our own lives as problems mainly to be solved by, by plans or, or programs, right? I'll, I'll give you the exa- an example of this in the life of the church. And, and I'm giving it because I'm guilty of thinking this way, right? We want to grow as a church, right? We want to grow deep and we want to grow wide. We want more people to come. And we may have, maybe even we have in our minds a memory or a vision of a day when every pew of the church was full, right? The glory days, so what do we do, right? We, the first instinct, if we want to get back there, if we're, we're thinking in terms of just action, is pro- programs, right? We need programs. But, but what's a program? Uh, I guess it's, what is it? It's something out of the ordinary that sort of shakes things up, something other than Sunday morning and Sunday evening services. And I think it's easy to fall into this trap of, of believing that churches grow when they step outside the ordinary means of grace and start doing programs. And we, we may even have this instinct that says, well, they shrink when they don't. People come for programs. They don't stick around for the ordinary means of grace. And yet, what is God's main way of growing a church deeper according to the Bible? It is the scriptures faithfully preached, consistently preached, right? What is God's main way of growing a church larger? It's having people being invited by their friends, their neighbors, their acquaintances to come hear the word and having them believe it by the power of the spirit and be converted. Now, that doesn't feel especially practical, right? It doesn't feel like the sort of thing that makes people, you know, if you're doing this, it doesn't make you feel like you're doing a whole lot to make the church grow. And actually, that's on purpose. How do we solve a spiritual problem like this? Our gut is we need to use worldly techniques to solve the spiritual problem. And I fall into this way of thinking too. I find myself thinking, surely the hope for, uh, for church growth is another program, right? We can do this in addition to the preaching of the word, right? And, and yet at the end of the day, we have to admit God's ordinary way of growing the church in every sense is through prayer and the preaching ministry of the church. Israel has fallen into this trap. The problem is spiritual, And they think the answer is pragmatic. It isn't. Pragmatism won't get to the heart of the problem. Only a changed heart will actually save these people. And for all its complexities, this this is really a passage about rejection. But it isn't a passage about God rejecting his people. It's a passage about God's people rejecting their God. They want to have him as God but they want to have this earthly king as their Lord. They want to have their cake and they want to eat it too, right? And, and, and it's very tempting for many Christians today to have a spiritual mindset. You know, they say, well, I have my religious life over here, maybe on Sunday mornings, and then the rest of my life is over there. Very different. I live a very different life the rest of the week and my life is sort of split up and I'm okay with that. And they make peace with that. Israel wants to do this. They want to divide themselves up so that God becomes the thing they do at the temple, but then the rest of their life sort of doesn't touch that temple. It doesn't invade the rest of their life. It sort of stands off on its own, and they don't really overlap with each other. And when that happens, God goes from being the center of life to being a formality. And that's what they're planning. They're anticipating a future where they keep God in the temple and then the king runs the rest of it. And so when they're doing this, they're not just rejecting a particular form of government. They're rejecting God himself. 
Now, the state of Israel, as the Bible knew it, doesn't exist today. You can't do a straight across application from what Israel should have done here to what America is supposed to do today. America is not the new Israel. Right? The application here is not America needs God as its king. The church is the new Israel, not America. We are one nation among many, all of whom need to know Christ. We all need to bend the knee. What the church needs is Christ as its king. The church needs to have Christ as its king. You know, if even the church won't have God as its king, what hope do we have of forcing the politics or the culture to come along with a God that even we won't follow? So the application here is not, we need to read Deuteronomy from the floor of the Senate. The application here is that we as Christians need to live lives that are fully absorbed in God. He wants all of you or he wants none of you. If we make God a one day a week being, it's the same as rejecting him altogether, just like Israel does here. This is a passage about the rejection of God by his own people and And our God is well acquainted with the rejection of his people, right? Over and over in Scripture, they resist him, they fight him, they pull back from him, they say no to his rule, and the beauty is he keeps pursuing them anyway. And God knows the rejection of his people. He endures it through the story of Israel. He does it for thousands of years, and he does it all the way to the cross, And if you read the scriptures and you wonder, how long is he going to put up with this foolishness? Is he ever going to just throw these people off and get rid of them completely? That should be our natural instinct. Why hasn't he done this yet? And you find the answer to that question, is he going to throw them off? Is he going to finally reject them? You find the answer at the cross because he lets them reject him to death. Because at the cross, what do we see? We see God's resounding response to Israel. And it's in Israel we belong to now. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, your Lord. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us a confidence in the truth that you are our God and you are for us. Would you fill us with the true knowledge that we have nothing to fear from the nations of this earth or your enemies in this world because you have conquered and you are great and powerful. Assure us in the knowledge that we are your people and you are our God and you are our shepherd. Protect us from forgetting that and turning to worldly tools to accomplish your spiritual purposes. Remind us once again that you love us, that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, so that when we act, we do so from confidence in you and not from fear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.